Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Okay, this is Trubus and Poiskin. And um, as I was saying before we started recording, I sort of got dragged into this uh, question because uh, a friend of mine who is uh, probably one of the most important psychologists working today uh, was asking me about the rabbinic and Talmudic and general halachic approach to adoption. Because we know that um, there are issues, as I said, you know, it's a, it's, it's a thorny situation. There are adoptions which work out beautifully, but he was interested more in the psychological uh, issues that, that arise. But there, of course, there are halachic considerations as well. And uh, just sort of as a hook, I figured we would start with a little bit from the Parsha um, that sort of indicates if you read the Psukim correctly, according to the Medrash, you sort of get the idea that uh, we have an adoptive father. Uh, let's take a look just quickly here. Um, it is very suggestive, of course. We know what happens to Dina. We know Dina falls in, uh, uh, Dina falls in with Shechem and um the subterfuge that is uh, enacted on them, on the on the whole city of Hamor and uh, and all his people by the Shvatim, the subterfuge, of course, results in the massacre, really, of the whole city, uh, and which again is a very great topic in the Mepharshim. Exactly why and uh, should they all have been killed? I want to just zero in on, on this interesting element. The passage says, In other words, they killed Shemor and Shechem, and they took her, and then they left. So Chazal are zeroing in on this terminology that they had to take her from Be'i Shechem. You know, wasn't she someone that was, wasn't she someone that was, was, was raped? Wasn't she someone that was, was, was ripped out of her family? So, Hazal actually say, Rebudin Omar, Goyerin Bobi They had to drag her out. That's what it says, Vayichu. Both of them, I mean, Shimon and Levi, again, however strong they were, they had to take her, and like, she didn't want to go. And, and Ravuna then added, Ravuna the Amor added, Haniveles, Laorel, Koshalifroish. <laughs> that's sometimes what happens, even though you didn't want it to happen. There's something about, and again, it sounds a little bit graphic, but there's something about, you know, someone who gets involved in this type of relationship with this non-Jew, this Aurel. Uh, it's hard, despite the fact that she's Dina, um, right? But Rafuna then builds it a little bit more. It, it isn't so much that she's in love with this guy, because you know the guy is, is is going to be killed right in front of her in front of her face, but she also says, which of course is a we're putting into Dina's mouth the same words that we know were in uh, Tamar's mouth, right? In the time of Tamar and Amnon, this is what she was saying uh, after she was, in a sense, when I mean, she was raped by her sort of brother, right? And this sort of gets into our topic a little bit. Um, technically, um, they were, 
they were biological brother and sister, but not halachic brother and sister, right? So um, Tamar said, what am I going to do? And that is what Dina said as well. In other words, she had been, she didn't feel that she could come back. She was someone that was damaged goods. So we have this idea that Shimon swears to her that you're going to be mine. I will take care of you. I will be your husband. Now, there is a huge amount of literature, which maybe we'll deal with in weeks to come, about how this could happen, how the brother can marry a sister. And, and, and remember, Shimon is actually a full brother to Dina, right? Shimon is a, is a son of Leah. It's a full brother, and yet he's swearing that he's going to um, be her husband. And that's why the Pusik says, when it says the children of Shimon, B'nai Shimon, Yimuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, Tzachar, Vishol. Hmm, that's one of his children. Shol ben Haknanis. Now, you could get the impression, okay, so who is, is it Shimon? Did Shimon marry a Knanis? Maybe, that's the simple shot. That there was another, you know, he had a Kananis wife, and that was Shoal, was his biological son. But if we take a look here, the Medrash says, Ben Dina, Knani. So, in other words, it's not his biological son, it's Dina's son. Meaning, Dina was impregnated by. Uh, by Shrem, and this child is not Shimon's child, and yet, what did the Pasuk refer to him as? It referred to him as B'nai Shimon. So, what we see is, and again, I said it was the first time, now those of you that are uh, know your Parshanas Mikra know that a similar there's a similar discussion about Sarah Bas Usher that Sarah was that that she was um she was Usher's stepchild but she's still called a daughter but here again whether it's but Shimon is the first real mention of someone who basically is considered a father although he's not the biological father. He has a child that's not his. Forget about why he could live with Dina. I'm talking about the connection between Shoal. Shoal is actually Shem's son, according to the Medrash. Shoal is Shem's son, but he's also, he's biologically the son of Shem, but he is the son of Shimon as well. And yes, there might be, it might be a little bit of a difference because he's also Ben Aknanis, right? He's also Dina's son. And we want to mention with that little bit of a, you know, that, that, uh, that negative stain on her that she is a, um, she's Ben Aknanis, but still, it's still Sholson. So what we see here again, and of course, I, there's many, many, um, uh, sub- antecedents, really. I just found this one. Uh, Chazal uh, talk about, when the Gemara in Sanhedrin talks about the idea of raising someone else's children, of course, they use Mordechai and Esther, right? Then Mordechai was, Esther becomes a boss to Mordechai. Again, not like the Chazal, then Mordechai marries her, right? Again, that might be a later development. 
But originally, Chazal went out from there that he was the Omen. He was the one who raised her. So you see that a person can take someone in and then you become, she becomes like a daughter to you if you raise someone. And and this uh, is based on the, the, the Chazal that say, that if you raise someone, it's as if you've given birth to them. And for years, uh, this Chazal was trotted out uh, by the Ramah, in fact, and even earlier by the Marami Rutenberg, which we're not going to see inside today because I want to uh, zero in on specific things, about children that were raised by uncles, by aunts, by grandparents, and they weren't the biological children. And the question was, did they have any schuyot? Were they considered, um, uh, you know, for example, um, was there an assumption that the parent should have to take care of them? If the parent died, uh, did the rest of the Yorsham have to take care of this child? Um, did the child, how would the child get called up to the Torah? Some Sofer dealt with questions about Avelus. So when someone was a step, when someone had been a, a child, been raised by someone else, did the person say Kaddish? Did the person have a schus to say Kaddish over and above other Avelum that were biological Avelum? Some Sefer says no, but the point is, he does have a schus to say Kaddish. He does have a, 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 a sense of being a child. And in many ways, perhaps, uh, you know, could, could argue with that, even in Bezdin, for certain Suyot. Again, part of what we find in the earlier literature is a question of Yerusha, a question of is, is there any is there any Anansadi that the person would have wanted this child to have money? Can the child be, once the, 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 the parents die, is this child automatically excluded? So the, the, the literature is there. And the halachic literature is there. And in, in, in fact, the Chsam Seifer and others bring proofs from the Torah, similar to what I'm saying today, that the shame Ben is there. And um, it, 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 in many ways is considered your child. And in terms of the halachos of Akibat Av, um, again, this is something that the Rabbi Yaakov Emden and others speak about. And they talk about the idea that Kibadav, an adopted child to their uh, parent who has raised them, there would be a chiv of Kibadav. Now, again, the question gets a little bit dicey about um, is there, uh, you know, uh, can, if there's no money uh, to do the Kibadav, does he have the same exact responsibility as a biological child or not? But the basic the postcom are pretty much uniform in this way. If they are still, if they still have that type of relationship, of a positive relationship, that Kibadab is there. Now, what changed? And I would say it changed with the world. The world changed. The world changed. For years, the idea of the poor child who was an orphan um, was mostly being taken in by families who would want to be mischased with that child. Child has no parents, what's going on? Um, and we know from, you know, looking in, in, in history books from the, in Europe, from the 17th, 18th, 19th century, there, there did start to be these orphanages where these children many times were, were, were sort of bought by untoward people who would use them, 
for child labor and sort of like slave labor. Um, we do find that happening, but what starts to happen more often as the 19th century comes to an end, and especially in the 20th century, um, is the idea of the orphanages giving children to families that couldn't have children on their own. So it becomes not so much helping this child, it becomes a question of having your own family. And today, if you take a look at the uh, statistics, almost 85% of, or 90% of the adoptions that, that, that occur are to parents that are suffering from infertility. And it's a means to actually satisfy what they want in a family, not to just help this child who didn't have a home and who needed our, uh, needed our help. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that, well, halakhically, how does that bear out? And I guess on one level, the question was asked, do you fulfill pru or vu that way? Or does pru or vu mean you actually have to have a physical child? Does it mean that you actually have to, um, do you actually have to physically produce a child? There is an opinion that is mentioned by the great Rishleim Kluger, um, which again, I don't have here for you, but you could find that it does, he does speculate that if a, if, if, a couple is finding themselves unable to conceive that they do not have to go through what is considered means beyond in order to have children. Because the derech is to do it normally. And if normally there's no conception, then they could therefore use adopting a child, raising a child as a way to fulfill this idea again he, he he floats that possibility and that's a very early uh sense of that now that becomes even more relevant as the mid 20th century occurs um where it adoption really becomes uh it's being sold as a way for couples that can't have children to have children now, again, today things have gotten a little more complicated because of advancements in medicine that have allowed um, in vitro fertilization to have a certain success rate and other sorts of ways. But I want to just zero in on the mid-century, mid-20th century halachists who discuss this. And I want to start with the Ben-Sion um, Meir Chayuziel, was the uh, first chief rabbi of the modern state of Israel. Well, the Rishon Lutzion. And a very prolific writer, a very important uh, machaber. Um, many people have rediscovered his psokim in the last, I would say, um, probably 20 years, 25 years, as a sort of like a halachist, a halachist that knew how to be Mako, halachas that that solved problems. Now, again, he was, of course, very well respected in his time, but I think, you know, he died in 1953, and you really don't see much. Uh, uh, he sort of went into a decline 
Um, but I think especially uh, through the, um, I won't call it the propaganda, but I would say uh, through the uh, calling attention to him, Mark Angel and others, uh, as sort of like a response to what they saw was an atiyah to be machmer, um, again, Sperber in, in some of his uh, writings as well, has said, let's look to him. Now, I, I just want to say that his Talmud, was, of course, was Rechaim David Alevi, who we've talked about many times in our troops in post Kamshir. And um, he probably does reflect very much the attitude of his Rebbe, who was a Mako. And more than just being a Mako, he was a person, I think, who understood society around him. And this was a safer that he wrote in 1944. And I think he understood what was going to happen. He knew that World War II uh, would, would result in many, many Yusayimim, many, many children without parents, many, many adopt children needed to be adopted. So he wrote a, um, a book called Shari Uziel, uh, which was really directives about children who um, who need to be uh, who are Yosomim and how we take care of them. So this is his shar uh, about adopted children. Now we don't. I don't want to take too much time here, but this is a real fascinating piece. He starts off. He knows that in modern Hebrew. There's already a term for children who are being adopted, which is called banim amutzim or banim meumatzim. Um, and he feels that in diktuk of the word, it's incorrect because the word amatz means strength. It means uh, a child that you hold, that, but doesn't mean a child that that you are taking over complete responsibility. You know, it comes from imatz deloch means a child that you strengthened uh, or that uh, that you have push strongly to you he says uh, okay so that's his 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 he's a little bit uh, nitpicking on the term in other words if he could write if he could be the architect of modern hebrew he would have written it a little bit differently he would have called them bonim amunim uh not bonim that are um amutzim but he says you know what that's what everybody calls them i'm going to use that as well he says, Okay, so now that he's ready to discuss it, I want to Im- indicate the chidush, the chidushim that this chief rabbi, this Rishon Lutzion, uh was writing. Now, the, the given is that you are getting this child. Okay, now remember, in Rome, in ancient Roman law, you were able to switch and say, this child is no longer connected to the biological parents. This is now totally the child of the family that has taken them. Now, why did the Romans were into this? Because there was an issue of, of, of creating an heir and could you buy the heir? Um, and, and, and that and the Roman law would, would, would dictate that this child is no longer connected to his biological parents, but is now a child of the new parents. And Halacha, Rav Uziel understood that there is no such a deal that occurs. Right? Rav Uziel understood there is no such specific halachic pattern that says that you can switch children. Right? You can't just say, this is now your child. And now it's right. It has to work with the gather that we know in Halacha of Hischaivus. 
a person has, if a person writes on a document, I, and, and we know when did this happen, taking in a, a wife with children. And what would happen is the person would say, I will be Mepharnas, your daughter. And that sometimes was a deal breaker, whether you would get, be able to get remarried to this woman. So we know that in that case, that if you write it in the star, you owe it to this, this girl. Now, unless you say, as long as she's up until this age, or as long as her mother is alive, once you say you're a chayiv, you need to pay for the expenses of this girl and take care of her. Now, and we, now let's say, however, by an adoption, there is no necessarily signed document that says, and I will provide for that child. Rav Uziel said, even if there is no signed document, once the parents, father and mother, agree to take a foundling, agree to take the child from another mother, then they are chayev completely for the welfare of that child. And that means we can assume, even if there's no document, that, that you're being mishabed yourself and therefore he says if you would say five years it'd be one thing but since when you take an adopted child you're taking it forever so you have to take care of that child forever so therefore he says a man and a woman that have adopted children um, it doesn't make a difference if they are not that wealthy. They are chayev, husband and wife. And they need not only to support those children, but also to send them to school, to treat them as just like their other, if they would have biological children, to train them, to send them to school, to teach them whatever a Jewish family needs to do teach them a trade, just like any other child who would be born to a family of those means would have to do. Now, this already sounds like it's not that significant, but it is. What this means is that you can't say, I'm not happy with this kid. What Ravuzil was anticipating was an adoption where there, and, and, and for many reasons, which we've heard about, and I'm sure many of you could probably think about, this doesn't work out. There seems to be a disconnect. We all know that there's something about that biological beauty of twinning. Oh, that's the same smile he has. They look so similar. And when you don't see that, when you don't have that chain of physical similarity, we know that the frustrations could kick in. And what Ravuzil was worried about was parents later trying to shunt their responsibility. They can't. Doesn't make a difference. They can't say, well, I'm not, this is not my kid anymore. I adopted it. It was a mistake. No. You didn't put any tenai in there. You accepted it. You, you owe all these responsibilities to your children. Um, Now, Rav, uh, Rav Uziel points out that if they don't want 
um, to be connected. If there is what, what, what develops between these children is, and the parents, the adoptive parents, difficulties where they don't want to be considered connected to those parents. Uh, so then, um, at that point, the, um, the, the adoptive parents do not have to pay for their expenses. They could say, look, um, you don't want to be connected to us anymore. I can't force you to be here. Um, but it's similar, as Rebbe Zil says, if you look in strict Shulchanarach, that there were many children in the time of Chazal who, even at a very young age, were disconnected independently financially from their parents. Things changed, of course, in the modern era. But there was this idea of, you know, of kids going off on their own. If the kid wants to do that, then we cannot force the parents to pay. They can't leave the house as teenagers and say, I'm not, I'm sick of them. And then we can uh, um, force the parents. If, if the child would say in Besden, the adopted child would say, I don't like these people. I'm not connected to them. Then we he couldn't necessarily put in a claim against those parents. Um Revlazil says now, and this is what he points out, in other words, they can't go to Besden and ask for money. If they live with the family, they, they are part of the family. But they it, it's not strong enough for them to say, hey, they owe me support. I don't want to live with them, but they adopted me. They need to send me enough money for me to have my own apartment, my own house. That. Revozil feels they don't have a right to do. Um, however, and this is very important, if a court, you can imagine this coming to Besden, the, the, the adoptive parents treat them in, in a dismissive, ugly, horrible way, insulting them, or don't give them as much food as the rest of the kids. Or, clearly, in some other way, some way that indicates they're not the same as the others. Um, or, even if the parents are all right, but they could come to Besden and say, and again, this is not a case where it was based completely on infertility. The, the, the parents, uh, they are coming and saying that, oh, the rest of the family is mistreating me. But the parents aren't stopping that. They could come to Besden and say, our Taina is on our adoptive parents, that they are not using their control that they should wield in the family to stop our adoptive brothers and sisters from treating us differently. So, in that case, Besden, what could he say here? Besden can be Machayev, the Ma'amtim, was say Sohem, Deme Mizonos, in other words, they could say that you can't force these kids to live here. You're not controlling the rest of the family dynamic. They don't have to suffer psychologically living here. But it's since it's your fault that they're suffering, you need to pay for them to have their apartment to cover their medical costs, to be able to go to school based on what you're able to do. And 
Besden needs to put on their social worker hat, Revuzio says. Again, he was writing this in 1946. Besden has to put on their social worker hat. They need to really listen and sometimes read between the lines to figure out how this family dynamic has become unwell, how it, it spun out of control, what happened here. And if they determine that the bad guys are the adoptive parents, then they could, Besden has a right to come up even with a money amount that they need to support these kids. Um, another thing that he poskin was that they need to get involved in their marriages. The same way that they are taking care of their biological children, they, uh, you could, in other words, uh, a, a, a boy or a girl who was an adopted child who felt that her marriage, that their, her adopted parents were not putting away enough money uh, for a proper wedding, not like her brothers and sisters, would be able to take the case to Besden. Why? Because the parents have a chiv to get their children married. Once they take the child as an adopted child, that's implied that they will treat the child totally and completely the same way. And therefore, like he says, doesn't make a difference if there's no document like that. The fact that he didn't write a, a counter document indicates that that's what it means to take a child. Um, also, what could happen, Rav Uziel understood, let's say some of these adoptive children inherit from their biological parent who gave them up or for some other relative from their biological parent. That doesn't mean that they lose from the adoptive parent. As he says, they are balechov liyeladim eila b'mezonoseyam. So the fact that they like won the lottery or were able to get money, the, in Bezdin, Revuzil said that you cannot, they, the, the parents, in other words, wouldn't be able to claim, we don't have to pay for their wedding, we don't have to give them stuff anymore. They're rich on their own. They have money from that they got from their biological relatives who left them money. No, that doesn't work. Could it work the other way, though? In terms of, you know, a person's high to maybe pay off their parents' bolos if they can't? Well, you tell me, Sheila, how's... I don't, again, here's the, here's the theoretical case in Besden Revozio is picturing, that the parents are saying, you know, look, we don't hate the child, but we don't, we shouldn't have to keep on shelling out money for this child and, and, and arranging their marriage when the child has money on their own that they inherited. And Ravuzi was saying that's not a, that argument would lose in Besden because you owe them that. The fact that they had the money from someone else. Now, now can you repeat your question or, or is it still a good? Well, I just meant this is the, could then the parents tell the child that they'd have to contribute to the family upkeep like any other child. No, they don't. 
They don't. Okay. They don't because you couldn't really demand. Again, you know, you can't demand from your kids. You can say it's the derech eretz to do that. I mean, you know, a question might be, Sheila, if the parents became indigent, didn't have any money. That's what I meant. Right. Could they say, hey, look, you know, you keep it out of aim. That would be a good question, which I, um, um, you know, that could be a question. Uh, he does say, let's say the, the adoptive parents die. And who's there now? The biological kids. He says the biological kids still, and then let's say there's these young, they still have to provide food and, 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 and money to those adoptive children because they inherit the debt of their parents. Now, they do not inherit technically, if the parent did not do a will, they do not inherit. Um, so what is advised is for the adoptive parents to write a star, uh, that a moment before their death, monies will go to the, um, the adopted children. Uh, otherwise, cause again, you can't technically they don't Yorish. So even though the Torah, as we see in this, in this parish, is by a daughter or a wife, the same thing. Right. Similar to when you want to give money to your wife or your daughter. Right. And again, you could have argued, Sheila, that maybe it's better here because, you know, it's like your child, but it technically it works with blood. So these are some of the psukim. Uh, they were revolutionary at the time. Now, I, I I would probably need to do more research on this to find out if these rules, which he wanted to be accepted by all the Bote Dinim, were indeed accepted by the Bote Dinim. It would be interesting to go through and do a search and, and, and find. But this was interesting from now. Um, the um, About 10 years later, uh, one of the, the great emigres to Eretz Yisrael from Europe and then London uh, was Rechesko Abramsky. And he came to Eretz Yisrael, you know, he had served with great honor in the London Besden and was the Av Besden. And um, eventually, you know, he was old Eretz Yisrael in the 50s. And they made him sort of like a, um, a sort of like a Rosh Hashiva in, as well, you know, he was he lived in Baivagan, and I think he had official title as a Rosh Hashiva in, um, maybe he was one of the official Rashivas of Kol Torah as well, and maybe he was Rashiva, I think, in Hebron. He, he had a title, you know, he gave a shear there, but really what he was, uh, was, in, was, was known as a Dain and a Posek who was Ola, and was given tremendous a covet for the last 20 years that he lived in Eretz Yisrael. And his fame rests on uh, his safer on the Tesefta, the Chazon Yecheskel. And it won a number of prizes uh, in Israel. One of the things that Yecheskel Abramsky, I think, uh, is different than many of, of, of his contemporaries, uh, is that he adopted, even when he was younger, a very beautiful Hebrew style. And his books actually won the, the prize based on uh, not only the... Uh, the depth of the ideas that were there, but also the language in which he wrote them. So in the Hakdama to, uh, to Seder Noshim, he writes about, he's trying to explain why Chazal say, as you can see the quote here, the strength based on the Pusik and Tilim, 
the, the, it mentions, it uses the term chosen, and chosen is all about Seder Noshem. Noshem is strength. It's the glue that keeps us together. And we know Seder Noshem, a lot of it is really about the takonos and ksuva and, and, and other dinim and yibum. So he, he develops this in this sort of mini essay about how important it is uh, the family unit, how it's the strength of Klau Yisrael and the Takanos Chazal have strength in that. And it's very interesting, again, in 56, to see this from someone who was a Talmud of Chaim Brisker, very much within the Yeshiva. Well, again, you could say Rabbi Zil was somewhat of an outlier. But look what he says here. One of the things that Rabbi Chesko feels is that when a family is, 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 is dedicated to, to procreate and bring children in the world and raise them in Torah, then everything they do is on an elevated, incredible level. But what about if you can't have children? So he says there's still something with their, their life. They can still add and somehow not only be the strength of Klal Yisrael, but strengthen the whole world. How is that? So he quotes the Gemaras in Sanhedrin about raising someone else's child. So he says, why is it as if you actually give birth to the child? So he says, He says, even if you can't have children, but God still considers it, not just because you went through the adoption, but because we know it's hard to raise someone else's child. And that somehow is, 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 is measured against the pain of the pain of having to actually carry a child, uh, of carrying a child in, 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 uh, in nine months and the, the labor pains. Um, and therefore, we realize, Rav Abramsky says, that it's hard to have rachamim on ch- children that you know are not biologically yours if you're a father. And we know that a, a mother who becomes an adoptive mother is, 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 is so invested that she actually takes upon her the responsibilities. A child she knows is not hers, but she treats as it's if her, her own. And that love grows and develops over uh, this long period. So he says those two things, which he knows are difficult, he believes stands as a parallel to the normal love and feeling that you have on your own actual children. And we know your own actual children, Abramsky writes, you definitely have this natural love for. So despite the fact that you didn't go through the labor, God will see the schar of what you did take upon yourself. And therefore, even a childless couple has, in a way, a tremendous merit in what they're doing and what they're able to, able to accomplish. Okay. So this, what I'm going to point out here, this did not need to be written at all. I mean, he basically is just, the point of the book is not drash. The point of this book is explanations on the Tosefta in Halacha, in, in Lumdus, and connecting it to, to the Gemara, 
and connecting it to other sources. This is just icing on the cake. But I think it reflects the fact that there has been the sea change, that now it's becoming more common and it's actually becoming an option and it's becoming an option that the Rabbonim are agreeing with. It's not so much an option anymore that the Rabbonim say, I don't know what's going on here. People are raising children that aren't theirs. No, you can see from, again, you can see from the attitude of, uh, of Bensian, of, of, of Zio, that he definitely is protecting them. And you see the attitude of Michal Abramsky that he's actually, I don't know how many people he felt were going to read this book, but it clearly in his heart, he was definitely reflecting a, a mindset of the mid-20th century that this is something that's very positive and it's something that childless couples should look to. And they sh- and he, as the rabbi, is telling them they shouldn't try to assume that what they've done is less and they shouldn't uh, hold their head down in shame that they weren't able to produce actual children because there's so much schools of what, schools of what they were able to do by bringing these children and raising them. Okay. Now let's get to Rav Moshe. Um, Rav Moshe was um, Rav Moshe was uh, was asked about this in the fifties. Sheila, I know you're from Chicago, so you, you'll appreciate this. One of the first questions he got was from Rabbi Mayevsky. Uh, I think you might have known Rabbi Mayevsky, yeah. who was the um, who was the one of the uh, architects of the ATT. He worked in; he was a teacher, and uh, as you can see here, from Rabbi Yitzhak Mayevsky. Um, and of course, that was uh, uh, I, I was zocha to know the Rav. Uh, I came to Chicago right after Rav Mayevsky died in 1986. And I, uh, of course, was very close with his family. You remember Miriam, his daughter, Allah Shalom, uh, Eisenberg, and others. Anyway, so this was a question that uh, Rav Moshe dealt with, and you can see the date is 1954. And he was actually, and this must have been a Chicago question, about how to run an adoption. In other words, what do you do uh, specifically in terms of the it's a boy that you're adopting, and the, the assumption here was that you were going to adopt a non-Jewish child. Our motion talks later about, we'll get into it, what is the best? Should you adopt a non-Jewish child or a Jewish child? So, um, Ramosha talks here about uh, assuming it's a non-Jewish child, and he talks about the differences in the type of the way you're going to do the bris, the bruch is a little bit different. Okay. Uh, if we had more time, I would show you Rav Moshe's somewhat unique take on how the liturgy should be altered. Um, what's interesting, though, is Rav Moshe, first of all, deals with when you do uh, do the bris and you say what the ch- you give the child the name now he actually thinks the name should be given at the at the, when you go to the mikvah just a number of years later but he says he can when you can call him plony ben plony I'll shame on the god's low now he says maybe you should say ben avram avinu but ramosha understood that this is going to sit well ramosha understood that you're adopting this child to be your child and you don't want it to start that this is your child 
and that you're already saying he's he's a gear, which is what's happening here. You're 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 giving him the bris, not as uh, it's like Bezdin is giving him the bris, the same bris they would give to a gear tzedek, and they're taking him to the mikvah as a gear. Now there are many rabbanim who read this and said, where do we ever see a gear? We know the Gemara speaks about, uh, let's say, a, 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 a person who wants to be Magyar, and he has a child already. So he can bring the child to Bezdin along with him. And then the child becomes a gear through Bezdin. But where do we find that if the actual biological parents aren't interested in Gairus at all, that the Bezdin could create a Gairus? So there are many who felt, really, adopted children, it's, it's until they grow up, aren't really Jews at all. They shouldn't even have Geirus. So even this is a Chiddush that Rav Moshe felt. And again, it was probably happening in Eretz Yisrael as well, but Rav Moshe is really out there saying it, that that there is a shame Geirus. Even though normally we, we know Geirus, like I said, is usually the mother brings it, the father brings it. Here, nobody brought it. Right? Okay. The second thing Rav Moshe is saying, there is Geirus. And secondly, Rav Moshe is sensitive to the point that we should call the child the child of the adoptive father. Now, we know that isn't, couldn't that be a problem? Couldn't that be a problem because maybe, hmm, people are going to think he's actually the biological child. So what could happen? So let's say, like sometimes happens at summer camps or things, he ends up giving Kedushin to, um, Someone who is a relative, a blood relative of had he, of, of, of his of his adoptive parents. So normally you would say eh, it doesn't mean anything. You can't give kedushin to your sister, right? Let's say there's another boy. Let's say there's a girl in the family, for example, or let's say there's an aunt, a young aunt, or something, and they're playing around and, and they give kedushin. So normally you'd say ah, the kedushin doesn't work. It can't really be right. It can't be makadish your aunt. So therefore, what would they do? They'd say the Kedushin's not a Kedushin. Hello, it is. Why? Because he's not really the biological child. And maybe, and, and the reason why people think it's not Kedushin is because they think he is the biological child. So Rav Moshe says, you don't have to worry about that. Rav Moshe writing in 1954. Doesn't really happen. Doesn't really happen that, that he would do it. And then Ramosha says another principle. And Ramosha repeats this over and over. And that is you can't it cannot be. And again, this is why closed adoptions are difficult. It cannot be an adoption where the child does not know he's adopted. The child not only needs to know eventually, halachically, the child needs to know that he's adopted before they turn 13. Why? Now, again, Rav Moshe knew what he was writing would not be so simply accepted. It's very hard for a child to believe and they find out when they're 10 and 11 that they're not really the biological children. And that a non, and especially if they were in a house where there might have been some anti-non-Jewish statements made that they're actually the children of non-Jews and that, that the child is a convert. But emotions that it needs to be done. 
Because if you would wait for the child to be older and then tell the child only when they're a teenager or older, in their 20s, so then what might happen is, based on halacha, they can actually throw away their Judaism at that time and say, now you're telling me? So you took me to the Bezdin, and and now you're telling me this? I don't want to be a Jew. And then what will happen? When Afreya turns out there is no conversion, and really what it means is the, the person couldn't, we would not even allow the child, if we knew this, you couldn't let him go out on dates. Why? Because when he's going to find out, he might now decide he's not a Jew. So therefore, Rav Moshe says that you need to tell children, boys or girls, otherwise you have a, a big halachic problem coming up. Now, but couldn't they still, um, if they even if they know about it once they reach Barbas Mitzvah, couldn't they say, "Well, I've changed my mind"? Okay, so Rav Moshe actually, uh, the way Rav Moshe says it must be done is the following: um, Rav Moshe assumes, and this is you can see this in the Orach Hashulchan, which I'm not going to go into now, that you tell the child. Um, as he's approaching 12 or 13. And then, listen to what I'm going to say. Again, I'm not going to read it inside. It's from a later tshuva from Moshe. Then you tell the child, again, as they reach maturity. Now, at that time, Rav Moshe believes that although the child is 13 and 12, whatever desires, tivus, especially, you know, rebelliousness, sexual energies are not yet formed strong enough. And then the child will say, of course he wants to stay a Jew. Now, this Rav Moshe says the following. You can go through the whole Geiris, you can go through and make the brachos and say, Allah Geirim, and, and treat the child totally like a Jew in all ways. But you need to know, you are bound to tell the child, because if you don't, and the child only discovers it when they become a, 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 a teenager in a much later age, then there is a strong chance the child will throw the Judaism away. And therefore, what you did 20 years earlier is suspect and was the wrong thing to do. Unless you're committed, Rav Moshe says, to, uh, to informing, at an age, listen to what I'm going to say, at an age where it's a pretty good chance, he says, Ruba de Ruba, the child will hold on to the Judaism. It, you, you've got to stack the deck against that statement. If you can stack the deck, now how do you stack the deck and still satisfy the aloha? You start telling the child as they're approaching their bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah age. Then you ask it again, and you can be pretty much sure, unless there's weird stuff going on, that the child will accept. And therefore, you don't have to worry. And you can do all the process of Geras with the pretty much rove understanding the child will stay that way. Now, even though that means, and Ramosha says otherwise, he has a problem. He understands the, the, the sensitivity that the parents had not to do this. But he felt that would lead to very big issues down the road, which could really 
end up impacting everything they did when the child was a baby, unless they were committed to do that. Therefore, they, they need to know if they are functioning under Rav Moshe's directives, a commitment to tell their child when they're about 10, 11, or 12, the truth. Otherwise, Rav Moshe feels if it's, le- if it's left to a later stage, things are very difficult. Now, let's talk about two other issues. The other issue Rav Moshe dealt with was hugging, kissing, treating them like a regular child, even after they've reached the age of three. Normally, you can't take a child that you're not biologically related to at the age of three and hug and kiss. Rav Moshe felt that that was not a problem. This is a child that is you treat like your own. This is not some neighbor's child. This is a child that you've raised. Therefore, and Ramosha proves it from a Gemara and Sota. It's an incredible proof. It's the type of proof only Ramosha would, would, would bring. Um, and again, I, I want to finish within the next four or five minutes. But I'll tell you that Ramosha's proof is based on the fact, let's say it very quickly, the Gemara and Sota says that there was the Gemara and Ahavamina that uh, stepchildren uh, should not marry each other. Because people think that they're really brother and sister. So Moshe says, if the father of the stepchild, of the adopted child, didn't hug, didn't hang out, didn't treat them like everyone else, and was was misyached with them, then how could anybody think they were really brothers and sisters? It's only if, and we know how actually loving and caring Moshe was to his children and grandchildren, so it's obvious to him that from the fact that Gemara said we're worried that people might think their brother and sister, that they actually were treated 100% like the brother and sister in terms of yichud, in terms of hugging and kissing and sitting on the lap and everything without any nafkamina, even after they reach the age of three and beyond. And up into the age of teenagers as well. Now, but Rav Moshe says yichud is a very difficult Takana to get out of. It's more chamur than hugging and kissing. Because hugging and kissing, we already know in Shulchan Aruch, in many places where it talks about uh, a hug and a kiss that's not derechiba, isn't bachlal oser. It's not part of osikruvu. But yichud is the type of thing that there was no if, ands, and buts. The takana was created in such a way to be so strict. So how do we get out of that? So Rav Moshe's machash, that's why I called the, 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 the shear, I called it paving the potholes. Because these are one of the potholes of the, of the situation. So Rav Moshe says the following. Rav Moshe says that the reason, he says that Yichud is all based on fear. Meaning the term for Yichud is based on fear. Right? If the husband's around... Husband's in town, there's no problem of Yichud. Ramesha says that when you have an adopted child, even as a, she's a girl that you've adopted and she's grown, you're afraid that if you try something with her, the mother is going to, or untoward, the mother is your, your, your mother, it's not her mother, possibly, but even the stepmother or the adopted mother is going to find out. So a husband is therefore, Rav Moshe says, deathly afraid of that, or that fear is there. And therefore, Rav Moshe says that as long as the husband and wife are not divorced and his wife is still alive, 
Yichud is mutter with the um, Yichud is mutter with the uh, with 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 the adopted child. But he says if one of the, if, if 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 your wife dies and it's just you raising um, your adopted daughter, he says there Yichud would be a problem. But generally, Rav Meishu was machadish this, and again, this goes against the psokim of of Rav Vosner, or Rav Menashe Klein, and many other the poskim in Eretz Yisrael. It's true, Rav Waldenberg was a matir. We're not going to get to him, but this is Rav Moshe Kaman the One last thing I'll end with: Rav Moshe, when he was pressed to the wall, said he does have some eights where you don't have to reveal to the kids. And I'm just going to end with this because it's so shocking. Rav Moshe writes that you could perhaps. If you know who the mother who's giving up the child is, the non-Jewish mother, you could technically call it a sale as opposed to payment for her not to, 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 to disconnect and then own the child as a slave, as an evid. And the halacha is an evid you can force into a gerus and the gerus sticks. Once you do the gerus, what you do is, then you're meshachrir. You free the evid. Now, Ramosha says, what you have to do is, when you buy this child, you're buying him al menas that you're going to free them. So there's no isra of freeing an evid, which you have, let's say, if you inherit the slave. So that isra you don't have. Now Ramosha deals with the problem of dina damachus dina. Now I know that when this and maybe it was a different suggestion was 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 raised to Rav uh, Yosheber Salavechik. Rav Yosheber said, "There's no way you can do this because it's dinah malchusadina. How would you be able to uh, to buy a slave? Even though it's technically not really a slave, it's a." But Rav Meisha felt that the, you got to go to the spirit of the law. Obviously, you're not trying to enslave this child. This is a way that you can actually help the child. You're, go, you're going to technically own the child long enough that it's called your Evid. Then, once that occurs and you go through the Geiris, you then free the child, and the child is completely ben Choren. But the child, unlike a real Geir, or a Geir who's not an Evid, who has the right, once they reach adulthood, to throw the Judaism away, and Evid doesn't have that. And Ramosha feels, although it sounds draconian, Ramosha feels if you could get that to happen, this way you could save the psychological issues that he knows people would raise about having to inform the children at a young age, if you're able to do that. So Ramosha says if you're dealing with the mother, you could possibly, if you're dealing with an adoption agency, he says, that might be a little more difficult. Now, I want to tell you this tshuva that he wrote in 1957, you're not going to hear it, you know, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm proud of myself that I'm saying it, but I've heard people refer to it, but they don't want to really say what he says, because it is so shocking. But Ramosha, again, looking at it from halachic eyes, says, this might actually be a great way to accomplish a, a, a psychological benefit. And, you know, again, you're able to do it skirting halacha because technically he feels you're not over dina de mechusa dina because you're not trying to really enslave the child. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.